Hi there, and welcome to Tending the Threshold, an eight-part podcast mini-series. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola. These special edition episodes of the Numinous Podcast feature conversations with my fellow presenters at the Tending the Threshold Conference, an event happening in Ashland, Oregon, on May 26th and 27th, 2018. This extraordinary event is a gathering of change makers, bridge builders, and edge dwellers. It's about relationship, ritual, and revolution. It's an experience of radical togetherness, disruptive social change, and emergent creativity. There will be art, beauty, play, grief, gratitude, conflict, intimacy, and community. In other words, this is not the patriarchy's conventional conference. The container at this unconference will be held by a group of 10 co-facilitators from three countries and many walks of life. The group includes poet and spoken word artist Tanur Ali, conflict engagement and resolution practitioner Aftab Erfan, equity and inclusion consultant Desiree Attaway, clinical psychologist and author Bio Acoma Lafay, social entrepreneur Donnie McClurkin, artist and death doula Rachel Rice, educator, facilitator, and indigenous rights activist Aaron Ortega, videographer and artist Beck Stupak, therapist, ritualist, and conference founder Holly Truler, and myself, Carmen Spaniola. For new listeners, allow me to just briefly introduce myself. I'm a clinical hypnotherapist, a somatic trauma resolution practitioner, and a wilderness guide. As of spring 2018, this show, The Numinous Podcast, has been around for four years and over 100 episodes. And occasionally, I'll do a mini-series focusing on a singular topic. Throughout this mini-series, I'll be hosting conversations with my co-facilitators, exploring the threshold upon which we find ourselves as humans living in these challenging times. I'm asking each guest how they see the threshold and why they feel drawn to gather with others in Ashland to tend the threshold. Bioacoma Lafay PhD is a renegade academic, lecturer, speaker, and proud diaper changer. Bio curates an earthwide organization called the Emergence Network for the recalibration of our ability to respond to the civilizational crisis, a project framed within a feminist ethos and inspired by indigenous cosmologies. He considers this a shared art, exploring the edges of the intelligible, dancing with posthumanist ideas, and dabbling in the mysteries of quantum mechanics. He speaks and teaches about his experiences around the world and then returns to his adopted home in Chennai, India. I caught up with Bio online. He was teaching his course on sacred activism at Schumacher College in the UK. So, Bio, the event that we're co-facilitating in Ashland, Oregon in May is called Tending the Threshold. And I wonder if you could describe for us how you see the threshold at which we stand as humans living in these times. Thank you, Carmen. Um, 
Well, I I would I I would say that the the most uh, electrifying liminal edge or threshold would be um, the edge or the line or the cut that distinguishes or parses us and uh, separates us from nature, hmm. if you will. Um, for, for a long time, for hundreds of years, and um, that's not a, uh, an encyclopedic account, but for, for a long time we have practiced the world as if nature is exterior to us, as if we were um, atomized individual units making our way through the environment. Um, in that sense, nature is and the environment are resources and we are the um, emblematic containers uh, of agency and sentience and beauty and truth and knowing. Um, and I don't want to say all of a sudden, but it seems sudden when you think about it. Um, that story no longer holds up. And the, the material enfoldments and movements and involutions is as if the world is touching itself. And this is made clear in the new disciplinary um, arrangements and discussions that are happening today in the kinds of events we're witnessing today. It no longer seems credible to say that we are the center of the universe or that nature is dead. Um, it now seems a very compelling to, uh, thing to say that the, the world is alive in ways we couldn't have accounted in our old, lasting, cherished narratives. So, what does that mean for everything? <laughs> what are the implications for activism? What are the implications for economics, uh, politics, um, uh, the way we practice abundance, the way we practice learning, the way we practice ourselves? And I just want to repeat uh, the words of Martin Shaw, who says modernity seems to create a condition where we can say that um, it is exhausting maintaining the form of being human. In a sense, the and I started off by saying the threshold, or at least one of the thresholds, uh, is the distinction that we have made, or modernity has made intelligible between us and nature. Um, it even goes deeper than that. It's bone deep. The distinction between us and ourselves and us and the world around us is crumbling apart. So we're in a compost heap right now, if you will. And yeah, what mm. we do with this space is we'll, we'll have deep lasting consequences for our children. Mm-hmm. So what does it mean then for you in terms of your work as a clinical psychologist, as a professor, um, and, and what you've called and, and what you've taught as sacred activism? If the world is, is remembered back into being alive, <laughs> how are you personally doing that differently now? Well, personally, um, um, my own steps of walking away from the like the trajectory that led to towards lasting security in the um in academia 
is was something definitely personal. Uh, my wife and I decided we wanted to live a small, intimate, and intense life in in India, and so we decided to take that step, trusting that somehow we would be taken care of. That was a deeply personal journey that is still ongoing. We still have just as many questions as we have been afforded the gift of answers at the same time. We also hold the questions as gifts as well. Um, not that I mean to make a demarcation between the personal and the professional. Those things don't hold up for me in my view. But in, in what I would, for access and for the ease of conversation, call my work, um, it has congealed into something that I would like to call post-activism um, as a way of thinking about the sacredness of, of everything at the moment. And that's basically saying that, huh, what if the ways we respond to crisis is part of the crisis? What if the ways that we have learned the classical orthodox and conventional ways we practice responding to the most troubling challenges of our times, what if that reinforces the status quo? Um, and what if, um, even if that's not the case, what if there are other capacities that we have been closed and excluded from accessing because we practice the world and we practice our being and our becoming and presence in particular ways. What is missing from the picture? What is, uh, and this is not an attempt to find some wholesome, final, beautiful, indigenous solution to everything. <laughs> it's, it, it's, it's more about asking questions about the questions we ask or seeing the way we have come to see. Um, so post-activism is not like a dismissal of what we do in the everyday. Um, in public affairs, it's not a dismissal of uh, professional platforms out there, people struggling for survival or survivance or any of those things. It's not about that. It's more about asking um, or, or repeating the call of uh, some elders in in Africa. I don't want to say Africa as if Africa is a single entity. Um, I, I, I can't quite remember this, the place it comes from, but the idea is the times are urgent. Let us slow down. Mm -hmm. uh, and the invitation to slow down in times of urgency is not quite, as I understand it, it's not it's not it's not merely uh, an invitation to slow down in terms of speed. It's more an invitation to notice the invisible, to, to linger at the edges and hold the trouble of discomfort longer than we're used to, so that in doing that, we might access, we might, it's, there's, no there's no guarantee, there's no confident epistemology and riffing on here. It's, it's a noticing that there are other beings in the room, that we live and thrive in the orbit of other worlds and other agencies. And sometimes we cannot control the outcomes. In fact, most of the time it's the case. So what does our activism look like when we take into account that there are others in the room, that there are elephants in the room, and that we will not always arrive intact? Um, 
this is the vocation of humility that is at the heart of um, what I feel called to articulate and speak about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and you speak my mind. It's it's really lovely. And it's interesting you say that you and your wife as a personal practice to address sort of these, you know, large themes um, was to to craft for yourselves a small, intimate, intimate and intense life in yeah. India. And my husband and I, my husband's uh, blog is called Small and Delicious Life. And, and so <laughs> we, we, at least if it's, it, it is definitely intimate and intense. And, um, and so we must have good food. but i i appreciate the the quality of approach and the quality of your looking and inquiry as um you describe uh post-activism so how do you see then in maybe maybe you have some examples or not but just how do you see then post-activism playing a role in helping us humans who are trying to engage with the other beings and in the in the natural and the you know more than human worlds, how how do we do that when we're addressing these large scale cooperation dilemmas, uh, mm. such as you know perhaps it's climate change or perhaps it's species extinction or perhaps it's water rights? How do you see this ideally unfolding? Yeah, I'll preface my comments by saying um, there there is. A, a very exciting resurgence of interest in indigenous matters and indigenous um, concerns and indigenous cosmologies, all the ways of knowing, which is rightly grounded in, a, in you know, an occasion by a world that is increasingly connected so that um, I can access I can access stuff that my father or his father would not have been able to access. And so the world is increasingly connected in those ways. And we're beginning to notice the lasting problem of the other. And, and uh, of course, you know, I, I don't need to say that there are many ways we have struggled to manage and or maintain the other, mm. either, either by fetishizing the other or colonizing the other or witnessing the other. Uh, and sometimes it's not it's very difficult to distinguish between the two. Well, um, um, well, I did say that there is a resurgence of interest there. And people are asking questions of, you know, how this is correlated or entangled with how we respond about climate justice, about uh, racial justice, about any of those things, poverty, alleviation. And there, there is sometimes a sense in which we tend to think the indigenous would take us quickly, like it's a shortcut to the solution we've not been able to arrive at because we are too used to our modern ways. Um, which, and, I, and I don't think that honors this opening that we're experiencing. The opening is not so much, hey, Look, you can take this, uh, you, you don't need to walk the exhausting and dreary yellow brick road. You can take this, the red brick road, and just get there faster. But it, it's, it's not about that. It's about noticing and holding space for other things that are just as, um, that are humbling, yes, 
but are just as potent and worthy of consideration. And maybe we're not able to hold them because we are subjectivized and conditioned in particular ways. Let me give an example of uh, an acquaintance. I wouldn't call her a friend, but I heard a story directly from a friend. Uh, um, her response to climate change and was is something to be uh, admired, I, I guess. So she goes to this traditional healer or shaman, I can't quite remember, uh, and she's, she's concerned about climate justice and how to respond to climate change. Now, the ways we usually do that is we probably blueprint a design uh, and ideas. We channel it through the funding, uh, the pipeline of funding, we standardize it and then we spread it across the world, right? And that's how we get cap and trade and all these, uh, and SDGs and all of that. Um, so she was expecting something just as big, maybe, or something compelling. But this man tells her to do something small, like, like to take a seed, plant it in a pot or earthen vessel of some kind and and drop it wherever she goes um, and just and, and that's it of course because we live in a world that draws direct causal links between problem and solution we're likely to lean back and say what good does that do that doesn't solve anything but maybe it's not about solutions here uh, I think in the business world it's already acknowledged that Problems are solutions with constraints, and solutions are problems with constraints. The world produces shadows and generates shadows just in its movements. So maybe it's not about creating solutions, not that solutions do not matter, but that other ways of seeing might help us, like I said earlier, hold and value other things that are probably not admissible or are probably nonsensical in our present a state of consciousness. What if learning to die well is just as important to, to, to f uh, creating an app that gathers three million people to march on the street? What if, what if learning to be with one's daughter is, might, might not be big in the usual sense of it, but is cosmic when you think of the world as a web that connects everything together. So that's the uh, that's the uh, that's the reframe of action and responsive uh, responsivity and capacity that we're 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 trying to hold space for. It's a, it's an inquiry that is never ending. It's not a new progress narrative that says everything else you guys have done in the past is wrong. Now we're the new guys in town. It's more an invitation to sit. And the, the conditions are not always ripe for that kind of inquiry. Um, but sometimes there's just a, the right space to do it. And we can sit down and we can do something different. Hmm. And we can become different in the process. Mm -hmm. yeah. Wow. It's a, a compelling invitation to me. And, and I appreciate what you said, that the conditions are not always right. Yeah. But sometimes, and when they are, um, yeah, what a beautiful and compelling step to take. I'm, I'm curious, uh, what compelled you to participate in attending the Threshold event? 
Um, well, first of all, I'm, uh, apart from the beautiful name of Tending the Threshold, and, and I don't want to dismiss that. I want to dwell with that for a moment. Tending the Threshold, taking care of multiple temporalities, pressing one's ear on the ground, the soil, to listen. You know, there's something about tending and taking care of and withnessing. I, I say withnessing, not witnessing, mm. but withnessing. There's something soft and loamy and maternal and warm about that, that, that already draws me to it. So if not for the poetic and aesthetic and the sexiness of tending the threshold, the sensuousness of that, um, there definitely the call and the invitation that I heard and I hear is, is not an invitation to solve the world's problems. Um, if that were the case, I would be hesitant to be part of a gathering um, that, that wants to do that. Um, there is a stunning lack of confidence in our ability to, to do that you know, because intending the threshold, we are not building new maps, so to speak. We are taking care of our limitations. We're almost like touching ourselves and meeting ourselves as if for the first time. And, 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 and that is the kind of poetry, the kind of mythopoetic um, gathering and revival. Well, that has very strong evangelistic connotations. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's the kind of emergence that I, that I feel drawn to and I want to be part of and I want to co-stitch with the gifts that I've received. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, I'm, I'm also very excited and, and uh, you know, you said it, it's loamy and warm and sensual and it's true. It's like it has this very... Um, it's like underpinning this is uh, a kind of energy that I think will draw in the people who, who have or want to have that erotic relationship with the sens sensuousness of life and that sort of like, you know, that, that yearning that I think is, is so lovely. And so yeah. I'm, I'm really thrilled to co-stitch something with you in, and, and the other esteemed facilitators. So thank you so much. I really, really look forward to gathering with you in May. Bio, thank you for taking the time to be here today. Thank you, Carmen. My pleasure. To find out more about Tending the Threshold and to purchase live or live stream tickets, go to tendingthethreshold.com. And please don't let money be a barrier. Organizers have a solidarity fund that sponsors people with marginalized identities and less financial privilege. If you have need and would like to attend, reach out to tendingthethreshold at gmail.com. We hope you'll join us.